episode was previously recorded and has been edited for the new Indie Business Podcast. Welcome to the Indie Business Podcast, dedicated to helping you break all the rules, build your own corporate ladder, and create the life you love. And now, here's your host, Donna Maria. Welcome to Indie Business Radio. And you know what? I'm going to tell you guys, change is a good thing, right? Effective today, my Indie Business Radio show is now called the Indie Business Podcast. It's the same fantastic show that you've been used to since 2005. But podcast is just a word that everyone seems to be gravitating toward. And since that's what it is, and it's available on iTunes, and pretty much as you know, every place else I can uh, share it with people, I'm going to start calling it a podcast. So, hello and welcome to the Indie Business Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Maria, and you have arrived at the one place where we empower you to enjoy your life, build your business, and have your way. Today's show is sponsored by Brambleberry, offering more than 2,500 soap and cosmetics making supplies, including fragrance oils, soap molds, and everything else you need to make your own products as a business or a hobby. Learn more at Brambleberry.com. If you're listening to the show at IndieBusinessRadio.com, I invite you to click on the live chat button. You can also post your questions and comments for me and my guests to the Indie Business fan page on Facebook as well as on Twitter. Well, guys, you know the handwriting is on the wall, I think. Whether or not you have a job, you will need some kind of business of your own to ensure your future and create new ways for you to make your best contributions to the world. It's a lifestyle we must all learn to embrace, I believe, and I did it 10 years ago when I quit a job at a Fortune 500 company to create the life I love, and you can do it too. And today's guest is here to help talk you through the process. Her name is Pam Slim, and she is the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, from corporate prisoner, that's interesting, to thriving entrepreneur, Pam blogs at escapefromcubiclenation.com and has consulted with corporations like Cisco Systems, Hewlett Packard, and Charles Schwab. She escaped from a cubicle just over 10 years ago. I'm thinking we may have made our escapes around the same time, actually. Welcome to the show, Pam. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's actually going to be 14 years in August, so it's been uh, it's been quite a while. I can I can hardly remember back to those days back in the cube. Yeah, back in the cube. So you know, well, let, let's ask. I have a question about that. Your blog is called Escape from Cubicle Nation, and I know that's where all this started 14 years ago. Tell tell me what was going on back then that let you know that this was kind of not only what you wanted to do, Pam, but you also saw a need for other people to hear what you had to say about us about it. Take take us back to that time and tell us what was going on that led yeah. you in this direction. Yeah, well there were there were two things actually. There were two parts to my business. And the first part was not escape from cubicle nation at all. It was actually make a better life within corporations. So the first ten years of my business, I was a management consultant and my clients were large corporations all throughout the US and Europe. And what prompted me to take the leap from my my full-time employment were a couple of factors when I first started out. The first was I had actually really always enjoyed being an employee. People have a hard time believing that because of my <laughs> because of my brand, but I was not disgruntled at all. I, I loved to learn. I was working for Barclays Global Investors in San Francisco, where I'm originally from, and it was a 
stimulating environment, and I had a great position. I had a fantastic management team for the time that I worked there. What changed is we were bought. There was an acquisition, and we were bought by another company. And most of my immediate management team left to go other places through the reorganization, as often happens in in, um, mergers. Mm -hmm. And so what I noticed when my management team left is within a period of about a week, I kid you not, it felt like I was coming into a totally different place. And what I realized is so much of the quality of my work experience was driven by the team that I had around me. And when that team shifted, it really affected the entire dynamic of the organization. And a lot of people were feeling that as, um, you know, as, as the organization was changing. So that was one indicator that I was just ready for something new. I really wanted to have that quality of mentors and colleagues to work with. And at the same time, I had actually been teaching martial arts and running a nonprofit martial arts organization for 10 years as a volunteer. Basically, from the age of 20 to 30, I was a maniac. I would work during the day in my nylons and pearls, and then I would race to the next location, take it off, change into my martial art uniform, and teach. On the weekends, I was um, presenting, doing performances at different community centers. I was recruiting a lot of kids in the evenings and the weekends in the streets of San Francisco for our youth programs. And so I was working a lot for an extended period of time, and I loved it. It was very, very engaging. But I actually got pneumonia right before I turned 30, and I think part of it was just accumulated uh, fatigue <laughs> from, you know, from going so much. So I think that was an indicator. And then turning 30, it was a bit of a milestone birthday, and I just wanted to do something different. So what spurred me to quit my job was more wanting a change. I actually did not have a plan to work for myself. I just knew I wanted to get out, and I wasn't quite sure what was next. So I don't recommend this <laughs> to others, you know, in a different situation. But for me at the time, in 1996, uh, you know, I had enough money set aside where I could just take the leap. And so that's that's where it started. And then it was when I got my first corporate consulting client that I just did really as a way to generate revenue that all of a sudden I realized that I loved working for myself. And that's what I ended up doing for the first 10 years. Now, Pam, it's interesting that you say you didn't really have a plan. That was almost 15 years ago. And now things are a little bit different, though. Do you, and people sort of need a little bit more of a plan than, generally speaking, maybe you had all those years ago. Do you think that's the case? And, and, and how do they go about sort of starting to embrace this idea of planning for leaving while they're still at a job? I think it's critical. I actually think it's critical at any time. The one way that I look at it is that individuals really have a very different tolerance for risk. And so there's never any one rule that I find that works for everybody. In general, my approach and advice to people is to work your side hustle, to if you are interested in starting a business, to do it on the side of your full-time gig as an employee so that you really work out the kinks, you begin to build your market, you begin to build your brand, you get paying customers so that when you make your leap, you already have a business to step into that has a track record selling real things to real people. That, to me, as a coach, makes me feel like people are mitigating their risk well. Now, the exception to that is where there are people who sometimes come to me and they're so stressed, their their day job is so overwhelming that they truly do not have the time in order to be doing their side hustle. And so from that perspective, I, I encourage them to have a really beefed up 
pocketbook to really save a lot of money if they are going to take some time for exploration where they really can make sure that they're not going to have to worry about expenses and that they also have a really strong network and they have options for what might be other forms of employment if they end up not identifying the particular thing they want to do as an entrepreneur. But I always see it as mitigating risk, and the best way that I can think of to mitigate risk is not just by having a big, fat business plan on paper, but by having a track record of actually building a market, engaging with real people before you leap. So, and and social media, I would imagine, helps with that, you think? Social media is fantastic with that. Uh, That is one advantage that we have now that I certainly didn't have when I started, is you can begin to build relationships and really amplify and extend the relationships that you already have as you're building your market. I know for some people, when they are still employed as an employee, they can't necessarily come straight out and say they're working on their side hustle because in in some cases they're not ready to share that yet with their employer. And so you have to be a little bit careful. But you can, for example, I've seen this with many, many people, you can begin to share your perspective on your area of expertise or you could really make sure that you are um, really connecting with all your friends. I know in your business where you do a lot of actual products, physical products, that it's wonderful where you really can make sure that those people that you know in your life you are connected with on social media. And you really, I, I just connected with somebody, with somebody yesterday that I have not seen in 30 years. Her and I were, were friends back in grammar school. And, uh, you know, you never know in what ways that she might be a friend, of course, which we can connect up, but she also might be a potential client or maybe she knows other people that are in a situation where they might need some coaching. And so even if you're not directly coming out and talking about your business, what social media does is it just amplifies and, and really highlights your network where you can reconnect with people, build that good personal relationship, and so when you're ready to begin to get out and and talk about what you're doing on the business side, uh, people will be interested. Pam, I know you have your your fingers on the pulse of of what people are talking about now. What are people saying who are in a cubicle or whatever you want to call it, even if it's a big corner office type of a cubicle, what are people saying about working at a job that pays well, that has great benefits, the ones that are left, and, and there are some that do, that have really good perks, nice people, you work with nice people, but they're just not happy. What are they saying is causing that? What are people feeling? What's, what's the pulse of what's going on out there right now with these people who are unhappy but can't quite put their finger on it? Well, there's uh, there are a few categories of things happening, and I think systemically, What has happened, I've noticed it particularly in the last 10 years of business, but really accelerating in the last five, is that as we look at what life is like systemically in most major global corporations today, is that the, the pace of work has really accelerated. So as the economy has, you know, even when it was growing, when it exploded, when it imploded, when everything fell apart, when there were, you know, all kinds of layoffs, what happened for most people is that corporations were really having fewer people do more work. There's more responsibility. So a lot of people are feeling stretched by just doing a lot more than they might have typically done before in in their corporate job. The other thing is that there is an extremely rapid pace of change driven by the market. It's really not, I don't think it's the fault of corporations. A lot of people get really upset when they're constantly having reorganizations and, and their you know, chain, plans are changing within a corporation. But if you look at how they need to engage in today's economy, 
they have to be changing. That's the nature of the way that companies have to respond. What happens to people inside is that they never really get a chance to get in their groove because they maybe just get their role or they're just working on a particular campaign, for example, for maybe you know a marketing campaign or something like that. And before they're able to complete it or really see the impact, everything changes because changes have to happen within a corporation. Profits are really driven on a quarter-by-quarter basis. That's what the board of directors are holding you know, people accountable for, um, the directors of the company. And so there is a very short-term focus. And a lot of people never really feel the impact of the work that they're doing. They're, they're just a, a few layers removed. So in general, I think there are some... Um, systemic issues that are going on that, that make it difficult. And the fascinating thing for me is that I get emails from all over the world, every continent, from you know Oman and Kenya and Indonesia and Brazil. And what's fascinating to me is people that are working for large global corporations say the same thing. They really express the same kind of, you know, um, things that are going on inside their company, which to me is what I what leads me to know that there are just some systemic things about global corporations. So that's one factor that I think is different today that can make it difficult for a lot of people. Um, so in with those conditions, with, with those things happening, there's the other personal side where there are a whole crew of people who have been in corporate jobs because they kind of fell into it. They didn't know what they wanted to do in college. They just kind of chose a major. They went on a bunch of job interviews. They grabbed the job that sounded interesting, and they just went with it. And before they knew it, 10 or 15 years later, they were in a career that they don't necessarily feel personally connected to. They don't feel a lot of meaning from it. They don't get meaning from it. They don't feel like they're utilizing their life's purpose. So given what's happening in corporations and in the economy, a lot of people are saying, you know what, if I'm going to really work really hard and you know, spend all my hours on the cell phone, on email, I might as well do it when I'm going to be reaping the benefits personally, if it's my company. And also, I want to know that it means something. I really want to know that it makes a difference. That's, that's the underlying pulse that I feel for people is they do want to feel some deeper meaning to what it is that they're doing. So it's not, it's not one factor, and it's not like everybody is unhappy. Some people are really, really happy to have a solid job right now, and it works for them. And I think that's fantastic. Not everybody should start a business at all. And if your work situation works for you right now, then that is great. I'm totally happy for you. I would say think about your side hustle. Even if you feel like everything is great, knowing how quickly things change, knowing how people get blindsided by being laid off, know what you would do if you needed to make a living. Good question. Good way to describe it. So, Pam, you mentioned that um, it's not really for everyone. So let me ask you this. What about people who are happy in their jobs? They would never leave their job, and they really don't feel like entrepreneurship is for them. Uh, but, you know, circumstances sort of conspire to lead to a layoff, and then there they are. I, I guess I'm wondering is, if entrepreneurship isn't for everyone, can it become for everyone who might find themselves in that situation? I go back to risk again. So the one human thing that we all share, the one emotion, the one thought we always share, I think for every human being on our planet is that we really want to take care of ourselves and our family. Mm -hmm. I've never met, I've been in many places of the world, you know, many different situations. It doesn't matter the economic situation. It doesn't matter where somebody's from, their background. They care about taking care of their family. 
So from that perspective, from having lots of possible ways in which you can generate revenue for your family if you need to, for some people this can be the case where they could do it if they have to. Their preferred work configuration is to work as an employee. So for them, what they're doing is mitigating risk. It's really the equivalent of paying for life insurance you know, or health insurance or auto insurance. You're mitigating the risk that if anything happens, then you will know how to make a living. And I think it's the kind of thing that we all really need to know. We can get sometimes a little bit stuck in a pattern of not wanting to look at other opportunities and just saying, you know, I'm happy in my job. I'm just going to, you know, hope everything turns out all right. The, the danger to that, and I've unfortunately seen some impacts of that when I get emails from people that are completely freaked out because they lost their job unexpectedly, you know, the downside is you really um, don't look at that. You don't, if you don't choose to understand how to work entrepreneurially, if you don't know how it is that you could provide for your family in the case you lose your job, you do put yourself at risk. And when you're in that state of panic, um, thinking about how our brains are wired, it's the lizard brain. It's the part of your brain that's really tuned for, for fight or flight. When you get in a situation where you feel really at risk, like losing your job, you don't think very clearly. You go into panic mode, and you're likely just to grab for anything. Or what I've seen for a lot of people is they just get paralyzed by fear, and they can't step back and calmly think about what would be some ways that they probably could make a living and, and that can to, can some lead to some really diff- difficult personal situations. So if you're thinking with, about it, yeah, I was just going to say, when you're thinking about it, when you're not in the panic zone, when you maybe choose to take the time to really step back when you already have a steady paycheck, you're going to be thinking about it more creatively and, and um, with a lot more calm. We're talking with Pam Slim, the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, From Corporate Prisoner to Thriving Entrepreneur. When we come back from our break, we're going to pick Pam's brain about steps we need to take to go from the cubicle to our own office. This is Indie Business Radio. I'm your host, Donna Maria. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Indie Business Radio. We're talking with Pam Slim, author of Escape from Cubicle Nation. And if you don't know where to find Pam, I invite you to go to Twitter and check her out at pamslim.com. How easy is that? And also at her blog at escapefromcubiclenation.com. Pam, okay, so I have a job. I like my job. But you know what? I'm going to heed your advice and start figuring out what I might do if I end up losing my job. What do I do first? Okay, well, what might be helpful is a framework for how you work through a process. And this is one that I uh, got from my friend Martha Beck, who I did some uh, training with as a coach. And she talks about um, four stages of change that you go through that are really helpful for thinking through the entrepreneurial process. So the first, the first square is uh, called square one, where you're really just deciding to make that change. You decide that you're not just going to have your full-time job and you're going to look for, for some side hustles to do. So often there's a little bit of shift of identity at that time. You might feel a little bit you know, spaced out. You might feel a little bit awkward. You're trying things new. The best thing to do in the beginning is to tune into yourself and really notice what lights you up. What do you enjoy? How can you have fun? And this can be things that 
have nothing to do with the potential business that you're going to do in the future. What you're doing is you're really waking up your muse. And, you, and for some people, it might be resting. For other people, you know, it's going to an art museum. So you really want to be engaging with your muse, which for many people in corporate jobs has really been squashed over the years. Now, the second stage is dreaming and scheming. And this is where you want to think about 153 ways that you could potentially start a business, go crazy, walk into a bookstore, for example, and just notice what kind of, you know, categories that you gravitate towards, what interests you. It's a great time to keep a journal, to keep notes, to be bookmarking things that seem interesting to you. And what you're wanting to do in this stage is just imagine a bunch of different things that would be of interest to you. When you start to get into the third stage, square three is the hero saga. That's where you're going to begin to take and specifically test a couple of the ideas. So thinking about folks that are in your community that are doing things like creating products, it's where you would actually begin to create a tiny little line, right? Maybe you want to make perfume, and so you focus on one particular kind that you would try where you'd bring it all the way from idea into production. You create the labels. You'd create a very small website. Maybe you would introduce it just to your family and friends. But that's bringing it into reality, out of the conceptual part of just thinking about what would be cool ideas and bringing it into reality. And you'd want to do that with a couple of the specific ideas that hold high interest for you and that also would potentially have a good market. So after you've gone through the testing and trying, it's where you're really going to focus on one particular thing that sounds like it would be your full-time kind of business. You bring that into this, the last phase, square four, which is the promised land, which is where you really do work it. You build your market, you sell it, you increase your business, and it often becomes the full-time viable you know, kind of business that you have. So what I find is often a mistake for people is they go from being in their corporate job and they just think, you know, what's the quickest way that I can make money? And they might jump into something that doesn't necessarily light them up or they might not test enough ideas to really get a sense of what's of interest to them. So I encourage you to explore the process a little bit and make sure that it's really something that you truly do enjoy. And that could take a little bit of time to find out. Well, and speaking of time, Pam, what what, what should we kind of look for? I mean, I know it's different for everyone, but I do run into a lot of people, you know, I've, I've been the president of IBM for 10 years, and there are some people that are coming back, you know, five, six, seven years later still starting. What, what, what are you seeing as a general time frame to give ourselves, so just so we have like a touchstone to sort of gauge by? Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> the the touchstone is it really, really does depend on, on a couple factors. One is it depends on the nature of the business that somebody is in. So for people who, for example, are marketing experts who are choosing to be marketing consultants, uh, I know in my case, when I started with my very first client, that was the beginning of my business. You know, I didn't have a business. I had one the next day, and it was viable for the next 10 years. Right? That's the case where I already have a network and I have something that it doesn't take me a long time to create and maybe having the kind of business as a consultant where you could really work with referrals. That's very, very different than somebody who might be trying something totally new or building a product line or creating some kind of a software product where there's a lot of time and development required. So you really want to think through what is the kind of business that you're starting, I like to connect with a number of people who have done a similar thing really well. My, the, the, my first piece of advice to people who are trying to do something new is find the smartest people you know that have already done it and learn from them about what that experience was, what in their words 
are the kind of stages that you need to go through in order to build it up. What I've seen from many clients that are, you know, working on businesses, you know, the first year when they're working on the side hustle, usually the first year are really, you know, where they're just working out the kinks, working over their own fears, figuring out their business model, and it it really can take a while to get going. The proof you're going to see is where you actually begin to see specific sales. And this can be a little tricky because some people amass really big, you know, social media followings. They have millions of Facebook, you know, fans and Twitter followers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a viable market. They have paying clients. Um, And I guess to address the second part of your question, for people that have maybe been doing their side hustle for a whole number of years and they're still not seeing results, I think you need to look at your business model. It's probably a business model issue. What I mean by that is either you're not targeting the right market, you have not clearly defined what is the value of what it is that you're selling, maybe you're selling the wrong thing into your market, or maybe you're trying to sell into a market that is not deep enough for you to have a viable business. So for somebody that's been doing it for a long time and has had really flat results, I would go directly to the business model. And then do do you also have to figure in where you might fit in? In other words, it may be a really good business model, but because you're so stretched at your job, you just really even haven't had a chance to get to it. So do you need to kind of look at both or or maybe consider, um, you know, where you might be able to do things a little differently? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the key for people to maintain a, a good rhythm and also to be strategic about their business, and this is a case really for people even that are full-time employees or if they're full-time entrepreneurs, it's really easy to fall in the trap of just working all the time. And, and, and Michael Gerber, who wrote uh, The E-Myth, in his terms, it's working in your business versus working on your business. And there's a really critical distinction. If you're only just delivering where every spare minute you have to work on your business, you're fulfilling orders or you're coaching people or, you know, doing consulting projects, whatever your side hustle is, you are not really taking the time to step back and evaluate what's going on and make tweaks. And often uh, people have a lot of potential where they really could be growing in a much more profitable direction, but because they're not taking the time to really step back and look at the big picture, it never happens. They just end up staying, you know, at one stage or they end up always having to keep their, you know, their full-time business. So you need to build into the process times to step back and really look at what you're doing. Am I focusing on the right areas? Am I doing the right thing? I'm a huge, huge advocate of not doing it by yourself. I think the more you surround yourself with really smart people that are working on maybe similar businesses or, or they could even be different businesses, but they're really smart entrepreneurs. If you can get, for example, into a mastermind group with people where you have some accountability for coming to people who are going to be questioning you in a really compassionate way, you know, about what you're working on, who are pushing you to think differently, those are ways that you can make sure that you don't get stuck in a rut. Good, good advice. We're talking with Pam Slim, author of Escape from Cubicle Nation. Pam, how do we deal with fear? Is that a big enough question for you? Oh, excellent. I'm sure I can answer it in the three minutes before our next break. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of important things to think about fear. The first is I think fear is our ally. Fear is actually there to protect us from harm. It goes back to the lizard brain that I was talking about earlier. The function of the lizard brain is to make sure that nobody attacks us and we can run if we are to be attacked. That's its function. And it's metaphorical when you think about the kind of attacks that we imagine as we're scared about starting a business. 
often it hits with Napoleon Hill's greatest fears, you know, fear of um, poverty is a huge one, people not wanting to live in a van down by the river, you know, fear of ridicule. A lot of people are afraid that everybody's going to think they're crazy or foolish or not smart enough. And so where you realize that your fear is just talking to you to protect you, you can begin to really dig underneath and see what of that would actually have some granules of truth and what of it is just a, a kind of gut instinct that's trying to keep you in a safe pattern, you know, in, in a safe place of in, in your corporate job, for example. So the way that I like to work through it is just to begin to engage your fear in a little bit of dialogue. If you have that kind of thought, oh my God, I'm going to live in a van down by the river, begin to dig in. Well, why is it that you have that fear? Well, because I don't really know if I can be successful in business. Well, why is that? Well, I'm not exactly sure what it is that I'm selling. Okay, why is that? Well, because, you know, I haven't really taken the time to create my business plan or to really develop my product to know what it is that I'm selling. Now, that is actually a place where you can do something concrete in order to address that particular fear. And so fear can usually be pointing to areas where there is some truth, where you really do need to be addressing an, addressing an issue. And then once you address that issue, it ends up relaxing your inner lizard so that you don't have to be in full-on panic mode and just think it's an all-or-nothing endeavor. So, so part of it is really taking your fear from its existence back all the way, tracing it back to its genesis and, and dealing with that instead of dealing with fear in a general sense. Exactly. It's, there's always a root to it. So whatever, it, it usually starts with generalized fear, generalized anxiety, anxiety, as the psychologist would say, where it's just a fear of anything that's going to be different or some right. generic attack by somebody. What if I start a blog and everybody hates me and they start to you know, spew terrible comments? You really need to begin to dig in from that generalized fear and find out what really is specific. But I find it's a very significant shift mentally and emotionally if your thought is, this fear is actually trying to protect me, as opposed to, I need to blast through it, or what's wrong with me? Why aren't I not strong like everybody else? Why am I so afraid? And you put yourself in a position of weakness and, and intimidation, which is really not true. If you think, hey, my fear is trying to protect me, how can I work with it in order to find out what how am I truly at risk and how am I not? That's, that's really where the good stuff and the true things that you need to focus on come out. Good. Excellent advice to position fear so that it is your friend and not something to run away from but to deal with. I love that. This is really good stuff coming from Pam Slim, author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, From Corporate Prisoner to Thriving Entrepreneur. We're going to take a break and come back and ask Pam to give us some examples of people that she's worked with who have escaped successfully from Cubicle Nation and are now managing successful, thriving businesses. That's right when we come back. Don't touch that mouse. This is Indie Business Radio. I'm your host, Donna Maria. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Indie Business Podcast or Indie Business Radio. We're talking with Pam Slim, Escape from Cubicle Nation author. And Pam, I'd like to know, you know, you've given us some great tips about, um, you know, really rearranging the rhetoric in our head and the playbacks in our head that may be holding us back from managing a successful business. I'd like to know if you could share an example of someone who, who, who has escaped from 
the cubicle and use some of the tips and some of the things you're sharing with us to do that? Yeah, well, I have a, a whole bunch of them. It's been one of the funnest parts of what I do is actually working with people through this transition. So a couple of different kinds of examples. Um, one is uh, a woman that I worked with that was actually a, a senior vice president at a large company and had a lot of ideas. She classically went through the stages of looking at a whole bunch of different things that she could do and spent a lot of time exploring what was of interest to her. She had many different kinds of ideas from event planning to you know, software startups to just all kinds of different things. And working through the process with her, she ended up really narrowing down into a specific product, which ended up having some relation to the the role that she was in in a large corporation where she's actually creating a product. It's kind of a combination of a software product and a service that will allow her to really leverage some of the contacts that she has within the entertainment and technology industries. Mm-hmm. And she's just on fire. I mean, as she really began to narrow down by doing a lot of testing and different ideas and find one that had viability, she's had amazing success with actually lining up angel investors and getting a lot of early support from people that she will be selling her product to. She just flew down to Argentina to kick off um, – that work with some developers, and she's you know getting the prototypes of her product up and running. What I think is really great about her story is that she really did spend the time to find the right kind of business, mm. and we we worked together you know over a period of months in order for her to really explore it. And she wasn't in she didn't put herself in a huge rush to just jump into anything. And I think that's part of the reason why she's being wildly successful with her endeavor right now. So that's that's one example. Another example is uh, a friend of mine, Willie Jackson, who I'll, I'll name because we've, we talk we actually talk about his journey, and he talks about his journey on his blog. Willie is a an amazing, smart, twenty five year old young man from Atlanta who had been a consultant for Accenture for a large consulting uh, company. And the great thing about Willie is he is a classic example of somebody who gets the side hustle. He's been doing the side hustle since he was in college, and what he does is he works with a lot of young people who are needing to brand themselves to work on their personal brand as they're graduating from college and to present a really good impression to, to, to hiring employers. And he does kind of a combination of actually very specific website development, getting all of their information online um, so that they have good search engine optimization so that they're found when their employers are Googling them. But he also does a lot of on-the-side kind of coaching and consulting to them about being proud of all the experience that they have had in their life that leads up to graduating from college. A lot of recent college students can feel a little bit awkward, like they don't really have um, a lot of experience. And what he really helps them to see is that their entire life and everything they've ever done can lead to a really great story. So Willie is, uh, I've been so impressed with him. I first met him in person in Atlanta when I went there to do a workshop for my book. And we're actually now collaborating. We're going to be doing a speaking tour to universities to talk about the new world of work. And, um, you know, he's just an example to me of somebody for, from our younger generation who have really decided that even entering in the cubicle world at all is not worth it. He saw even in a couple of years he was there, he had a great position. But basically what it meant is that he was in a cramped room doing spreadsheets for 18 hours a day. <laughs> and the glamour really wore off on him, and he feels a deep calling to be doing something that's more meaningful. So... 
you know, different generations, people who are working on things in a different way. Um, I think Willie's great example is that he really mastered the side hustle. And so when he was ready to quit his job, he already actually had multiple sub-streams of income that were coming from what it is that he was doing, building websites, speaking now in the tour with me, and then also um, doing web hosting and a lot of things like that. Now, Pam, you're a mom, and you have, um, is it two two young children? Uh-huh, a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and I have a 23-year-old bonus son as well, my stepson. Oh, okay. Well, and you've got two young ones, so just mm-hmm. like me and a lot of our listeners, you are running a business as you're doing all that, and, and the two of us don't have uh, the, the corporate hustle any, anymore. We're out of the cubicle, so yeah. we have a, a little bit less going on. Can you share some tips for moms? who are in corporate America now, they want to leave, and they need to go through the process that you're talking about, Pam, but time management and other things just seem to, you know, gravitate, you know, pull them in a different direction. Can you give us some examples of people, of women, mothers, who have done this or are doing this, and how are they doing it? Oh, I mean, I have many, I would almost venture most of my female clients are moms, so I have... You know, I, I, I work with them all the time. And I find, if I may, you know, to my, my fellow sisters who are mothers, <laughs> I say this um, with great respect and speaking to myself as well. But I think sometimes we can be really lousy with our boundaries and get into the mindset that we have a full-time job. It's our responsibility to really be the full-time, you know, to-do list manager of the family, the full-time nurturer, the full-time housekeeper, um, you know, taking on a huge amount of roles where we really consider that that's just the way that it is. You know, when you're a mom, when you're a wife, when you're an employee, there are certain things that you really have to do. And I am all for being the best mom that you can be, best wife, best employee you can be. That said, there often are areas in which you really can set some boundaries and create some negotiation with your partner if you are a partner. I have clients who are single moms where it can be a different kind of a situation where you may not have a partner that can pick up slack in certain areas, but maybe there are different ways that you could work with your extended family to get a little bit more time off in order to work on, you know, work on your side hustle. And so part of what it's really important to get clear is that your journey, first first of all, is worthwhile and that in certain times, certain stages of the development of your business, you are going to need to make choices and prioritize things. And it's not always going to make everybody happy, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not always, it doesn't always feel great if you're not totally present all the time as maybe you have been when you're only doing one thing. So, But realizing that, looking at what the long-term benefits can be, I think if you plan for certain stages where you really talk with your family, again, if you're in a partnership or a marriage, where you talk with your partner and you say, okay, much like if you were going to go back and get an MBA, you know, people often figure it out when they're going to school, but they don't apply the same thinking to starting a business. So if you were going to school, you would say, all right, I'm going to have classes these evenings, you know, I need to be studying on the weekends. What are ways that we can work together so that I can have time to do that? And where you get a little bit of shift in responsibilities, maybe a little bit more shared responsibilities on the home front, and where your partner understands how it's going to benefit the family as a whole. A lot of the communication needs to take place before you jump in and you start to do things. And the other thing I would say is that make sure that you're doing the very same thing for your partner. So maybe if they're stepping in, I know when I was writing my book, my husband deserved a you know Nobel Prize for <laughs> for watching the kids because 
during the last two months when I was really just cruising in order to meet my deadline, he ended up having to take the kids a lot on the weekends just so that I could get it done in that crunch time. So knowing that he did that and, and knowing how much I appreciated it, when that was over and I got more time back, that's where I was really looking and seeing for ways that I could support him. And his business ended up, you know, kicking up where he was on the road a lot, and I very happily stepped in and, you know, did a lot more uh, of a hands-on parenting when he was gone. So communication is a part of it. Boundaries is a part of it. I think I worked from home for 13 of my 14 years. I just moved into an outside office. And I learned that it's actually really, really hard if you're trying to work on your plans when your kids are around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I suggest right. that, yeah, where you do have maybe a couple hours, it's much easier to, where you can, you know, go to a cafe or go to a co-working space or, you know, go to the library, somewhere where you can be uninterrupted. Because I think it's a mom, it's like a mom gene. Like as soon as you're a mom, you hear, even if you're focused on maybe writing something or creating a product, you're tuned in for the tone of voice from your kids. So if you hear a, you know, a squeal or a cry or you hear your kids fighting or something like that, you're going to be tuned into it and really be you know, drawn away from your work. So what I found having an outside office is that I actually get much more done. I don't have to work as many hours because when I'm at work, I'm totally focused on work. And then when I'm at home, I'm totally focused on my kids. And I found it's actually better for everybody all the way around. That's such good advice. I've I've noticed all those things as well. Pam, what surprises people the most when they go from the cubicle to their own business? What can you tell us that surprises people the most so that our listeners today won't be caught off guard as they make this journey? I think what surprises people is the that it can feel really overwhelming to be the one in charge. And it's easy to be sitting back and blaming management, which we all know can often be very lame. You can be in a situation where you hate the way things are run and you imagine that if you were running it, it would be a lot different. But it's easy to forget that somebody else, when you're in a corporate job, is providing the guidance. Generally, they're handing you your goals. They're giving you specific feedback. You know what you need to get done in any given week. And when people go out totally on their own, all of a sudden, you're the one that has to create that structure. And that can really throw people for a loop. They just sit back. They know they have a bunch of stuff to get done, but they don't know what it is. And that's often where it can be good initially to work with a coach or, as I said, get a mastermind group, have somebody work with you so that you can start to get in the groove of understanding how you translate what your overall goals are during a certain quarter of really what what you want to get done and how you bring it back to know what is it that you need to work on in any given time. Um, Because a lot of people just get overwhelmed not knowing how to motivate themselves and find that they can get into procrastination, um, start to feel worried about, you know, not getting everything done. So I think that's that's one really big thing. And um, the other thing is actually a very positive thing, which is the exhilaration. I, I know that I was just, I felt like I was on fire when I was on my own, even though I was doing consulting that was very similar to the work that I had done as an employee, it felt 100% different than when I was doing it as an employee because I wasn't in all of the politics that went on in the organization. And that felt so freeing to me, and it really was highly, highly enjoyable to do the work. So it can be really exhilarating to know that you are the one in charge. And, um, you know, I, I think that's something that people have to look forward to. One of the things your book talks about, Pam, is the importance of recruiting your tribe. And 
of course, that makes me and maybe some other people think of uh, Seth Godin's book, which is entitled Tribes, which is, by the way, a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. But, but Pam, are, t- tell me this. What do you mean by a tribe, and are, they, are there different types of tribes? What, what kinds of tribes should we recruit, and how can they help us? Yeah, I actually tease Seth because I, I used tribe in my chapter before his book came out. <laughs> so, so, but it was a similar thing. My husband is actually Navajo, and so I was teasing. You know, some of the metaphors that I use for tribe comes from actually the Native American tribes um, here uh, that I experienced just through my own family situation. What, one of the things that I noticed in my husband's um, culture is that there is such a sense of affiliation and connection. When people meet each other, you introduce yourself by clan, and immediately after having a meeting, people really understand how they fit together, and there's a real, there's a real um, sense of connection and, and a, just a really deep um, you know, feeling that people have with each other, knowing that they are connected to some greater purpose. And that's the kind of feeling that I really like people to have when they're going through the, the process from being an employee to an entrepreneur is you want to feel like you are part of something. And most people feel extremely the only one in their family that's considering leaving a job, if they are the only one within their social circle, within their neighborhood that's doing it. A lot of people will tell you that you are crazy, and it's easy to believe that. Um, if you don't surround yourself with others that are uh, that are on a similar journey. So mm-hmm. what I suggest, it's really a similar process to looking for your right clients. Identify the kind of people that you really get invigorated hanging out with. Who would be wonderful to be around? Who is really, really smart? Who is very, very supportive? Um, where are the experts in your in your area? And I like to have a couple different layers of your tribe. You have what I call your posse, <laughs> which are people who are in a similar stage of you in business. Maybe they're not exactly in the same business, but they can be more like your mastermind partners, people that you'll hang out with that will give you specific feedback and encouragement. Then you have your high council of Jedi Knights, and those can be people that you really admire. Seth Godin is one for me. I love his work. I admire what he does, and I aspire to have a similar kind of you know impact that he does in the world. And so thinking about who are some of those people that could end up being direct mentors if you end up meeting them in person or could just people be people that you like to study their work and read their books and aspire to, that's a really important way to begin to build begin to build your tribe. Social media is fantastic for doing that. That is the way you can really do it is to notice maybe you're really interested in a particular topic and so you can start to look and see what are different blogs that have information on that topic. What who are there any subgroups on Twitter? Are there Facebook fan pages around particular areas like, you know, maybe natural products or people that are interested in social entrepreneurship or consulting? As you start to look for some of those sites and then begin to build uh, relationships with people there, that is a fantastic way to begin to build your tribe. And then take it offline as well. I know when you and I met, the first the first time in real life was in Charlotte where we had a wonderful cross-section of people that were brought together to look at innovation and entrepreneurship within the Charlotte area. And it's a great example of a wonderful place to meet folks in person that can really help to uh, to extend your reach and, and give you feedback and input. Sam, you, you also talk a little bit in your book about defining the spirit of your brand. How, how do you sort of get started doing that? And then, you know, how, how much of that incorporates who you are as a person? It all incorporates who you are as a person. Uh, I actually think that the 
spirit of your brand is really the spirit of who you are. That's my that's my take on it. That's my approach to entrepreneurship. So I welcome people to to have a different view. But for me, the best kind of company, the best kind of brand is going to spring from the root that is you. It's your feeling. It's your spirit. It's the way in which you look at the world. Even if you're really creating a product, you can really have it be infused with characteristics of what it is that you're like. So as you're going through the process of exploration about what kind of business that you're starting and you are developing it, you're thinking about the market, the spirit of your brand is communicated in the look and feel of it. You know, what does your website look like? What does the product look like? What's your, what do you, how do you talk? How do you communicate with people? There are those that are very um, maybe succinct, that you provide straight up you know, direct feedback to people. There are those people that like to be very lighthearted and have an overall spirit of their brand that's really about being funny and engaging. There are those that really want to have a luxury kind of brand. Maybe somebody feels really, um, really tied in their own life for having really high-quality things and, and talking in a very elegant and eloquent way. So wh- whoever it is that you are and also whatever way that your market will really best get information from you, that really becomes the spirit of your brand. And it comes out in everything about you know, how it is that you operate. The spirit of your brand, most importantly, is in how you actually deliver the work. What's, what's the experience that people have when working with you? Are you reliable? Do you do, you, do they have a good customer service experience? Does your website function effectively? Everything about that is really communicating the spirit of your brand. And what I find that many new entrepreneurs just think about brand in terms of logo. You know, they spend a huge amount of time thinking about how can I design my logo so that it's really effective. <laughs> and I think that's actually not the most efficient use of time. That's really a you know way way down on the list. That's the important point. thing is, yeah, who are you connecting yeah. with? Who are you? And how can you really communicate that in all ways? Such a good point. And I, I always say, you know, we're our best assets when it comes to creating the brand. And I love that you said that. You heard it right here, guys. It's not all about the logo and the colors and how everything looks. You are a big part of the spirit of your brand. That's what Pam Slim says. She's the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation. You can get more information about Pam and her book, at her blog, EscapeFromCubicleNation.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Pam Slim. So exciting. Great to have you here today, Pam. I encourage you all to go out and get this book, even if you're not transitioning. Some great tips in here for entrepreneurs and small business owners from all walks of life. Next week, Willie Peterson, author of Strategic Learning, joins us to share his situation analysis approach to outsmarting the competition by turning key insights into competitive advantages. That's next week, right here on Indie Business Radio. I'll see you then. In the meantime, enjoy your life, build your business, and have your way. The Indie Business Podcast is powered by the Indie Business Network. For more information, visit www.indiebusinessnetwork.com.